for this morning because it's very much about uh, who you're trying to seek the approval of and where the affections of your heart are directed. And God knows our hearts, um, which means he's very patient with us for sure. But also we can't escape uh, him knowing exactly what's happening uh, too. So we're going to look at Ananias and Sapphira this morning. We'll find this text in Acts chapter 5, but we're going to connect it to the text immediately before because that's an important, uh, important one to make those, those two connections. So first we'll take a look at this scripture together. I'll read this for you, and then we'll try to unpack it just a bit today. So Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32, and uh, we'll read all the way through verse 11 of chapter 5. If you want to turn there in your, your Bibles, that's great. We do have it up here as well on the PowerPoint. Uh, again, I always commend looking at the, uh, the, the words themselves, and then you have access to checking some other things out and even seeing it in a broader context. But here we go with Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And there we read, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who had heard about these events. This is the word of God. Father, would you give us attentiveness now to this word for those who need to hear the note of grace? Would you speak assurance to their heart and to those who need to hear the note of conviction? May you pursue their souls and drive them into the arms of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I remember a handful of years ago at our former church, our mother church, the senior pastor, Walter, called me and uh, could barely talk. It was uh, uh, kind of habitual for him during the winter years to, to lose his voice on occasion. It was 
a Saturday, maybe afternoon, and he said, you know, Mark, I can't go on it. Basically, he was communicating, I can't preach tomorrow. And I said, oh, that's okay. I, I, I got it. I got you. And, of course, the text was from Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed against all mankind. <clears throat> so I had a good, you know, 18 hours to prepare to deliver a message on God's wrath, which you know, is not very... Um, user-friendly, I suppose you could say. The whole idea of God's wrath, his terrifying awesomeness, because we tend to think of, of God's love and his compassion and his long-suffering. And that is, that is absolutely sort of an umbrella quality for him, but part of what that looks like is for him to be just and to execute right judgment against sin. And this is a text where we see some of that happening, but I would propose to you really the thrust of the text is God's grace. That what Luke wants us to see as we read this is that the lavish grace of God that translates into our lives is something that we need to embrace and experience or we could miss it entirely and that is to our peril. It's important to note that this was written by Luke you know, uh, scholars will put this together. Luke Acts, and you open up Acts chapter 1, it says, In my former book, Theophilus, I told you about all that happened. He's talking about the gospel of Luke. And isn't it interesting that last week in Luke chapter 19, we saw Zacchaeus, who was a sinner encountering God. And after he did, through the person of Christ, what happened to his heart? It opened up with generosity. He said, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor, and I've cheated anybody out. Four times I'll pay them back. This is the same Luke that's writing now about this burgeoning New Testament church that are gathering people and seeing God's hand at work. And one of the ways that it manifests itself, the very grace of God is through their generosity, just like with Zacchaeus. There's this intentional contrast then as Luke writes this between the general experience of the church that we see in Acts chapter 4, they've tasted God's grace. They've seen his power at work in a particular example of someone who misses it. And the question we should be asking ourselves at the end of this time is, am I missing God's grace? And if we are, typically what we're left with is a distorted perception of who God is on some level. But if we do grasp it, we'll see our hearts becoming not only more generous, but we'll have a healthy fear and a deeper respect for the things of God. That's what happens in this text. So let's take a look at this first and look at the first uh, piece of this, experiencing God's grace, uh, what we might call the believing church, because they're referred to as believers that are together. In chapter 4, verses 32, just looking at to 37. So, experiencing God's grace. And the key observation here, this doesn't seem to be advancing. I don't know if I'm not doing the right thing. Wow, that was... Did you fix that or... Uh, okay. There we go. Experiencing God's grace, the believing church. The key observation here if you have your uh, scripture in front of you still, is in verse 33, which I don't have there. That's a real shame. Uh, that much grace was upon them all. <laughs> Look at that, verse 
33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And then it goes on to say what happened there. So that's the keynote, that God's grace is upon them. You know, this is the early church, how significant it is for them to be experiencing God's grace as persecution comes from the outside, how much more they'll need it moving forward as they settle in and they need God's grace even in relationship with each other, as Paul writes more and more about this New Testament church. But that that note of grace is so significant. Grace typically defined as unmerited favor. And we get the sense here that these believers understood that all they had was a gift from God. You know, perhaps you could say they knew that God was at the center. Remember last week with the hub and the spokes? God had been placed right in the center of their lives. And because that was the case, it informed absolutely everything else that they, they did. It, it informed the way they look at their possessions, the way they ministered to one another when they looked at each other, opening up their homes, and, and actually early, in the early church running toward danger as well instead of protecting themselves and huddling. It's part of what typified this early church with the powerful grace of God at work in them. And so, because that's the case, they can hold loosely to all the stuff of life. Those things which tend to become stifling or stumbling blocks were not holding them in shackles. So they gave freely. If their idol was security, maybe by the stuff that they had, they could give quickly of it. It didn't matter in light of the grace that was upon them. They trusted God would protect They trusted God would provide. How key is that? If you want to know what it looks like for for God's grace to be powerfully at work, these believers show that in them, they trusted God would protect them. They trusted God would provide for them. And how many times do we have that opportunity in our own lives as well? And from that conviction, they held loosely to the things of the world and boldly to the things of God. And in fact, we see a couple of evidences of God's grace powerfully at work in them. One is that they're bold in their proclamation of the word. And you kind of can look back at verse 31, actually, just before that as well, where it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Jared, this doesn't seem to be clicking again. I don't know why. But... They're bold in their proclamation of the word. Then look at verse 33, too. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That wasn't a popular notion then, of course. Uh, Caesar was supposed to be God. They said, no, the real king has come, and he's risen from the dead. And they're proclaiming that boldly. A part of uh, God's grace upon them is what you might call being loose-lipped and natural about God's word. That's, that's something I, I know even, even trying to think about the own, our, our own culture, where, where we live, and being uh, aware of perhaps being sensitive to certain things. Um, and there, there's some wisdom in that for sure, but oftentimes our silence means that we're ashamed more than anything else. We're afraid perhaps of a reputation or even a misunderstanding, and I'm guilty of this as well having some experiences where people just misunderstand, perhaps. When I speak something about God's truth, there's a concern about them misreading or misunderstanding at the expense of actually saying what's true and speaking 
God's word and love. And yeah, we do Proverbs 18, 13, such a great, great verse. You know, he who answers before listening, that's to his folly and his shame. We need to make sure we're listening hard to understand. But you do need to speak. And oftentimes we're shackled in fear, driven and not wanting to say what is true, even if it's because so many others who've claimed to say what is true have been poor examples of it. It doesn't change the fact of the matter of what is right. They're bold in proclamation. And in word, you know, most of the, 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 the great awakenings and the, and the history of the church, and certainly in the United States of America, one of the things that's happened in that first great awakening one of the evidences that God is at work in people's hearts is they have an insatiable desire to read and declare God's word. That's it. To take it as God's word, as truth, and to declare it, no matter what the consequences may be. That's evidence of God's grace richly at work, certainly in the lives of this early church, and even historically in the church. Beyond that, I'll, I'll say another note that's interesting as Eric was uh, teeing this up nicely too and, and looking back at Luke 19, again, the same author here too, another evidence of God's hand at work, his grace upon people as they're quick to repent. A love and an affection for God's word and a keen awareness of our own imperfection, of our need to be honest before God and to confess our sins to each other as well. See, that creates and fosters a sense of humility. And oftentimes when we confess that, I mean, there's, there's no strange sin, really. You'll find that there are other people who are wrestling with the same thing. I'll bet there's other perfectionists in our midst trying to control outcomes. The besetting sin maybe that arises and sure victory, but still we'll be fighting some of these battles to the end, and it's as we confess those things. And, and we can experience real healing through confession, James tells us. That God's word can be proclaimed even more boldly, in my estimation, because it's not as if we're trying to say, we've got it all figured out. We know we don't, but God's word is right and true, and I'm standing on that. That's part of what it looks like to experience the powerful grace of God. Well, they're bold in word, but they're also bold in action or deed. That's the main thrust of this section. They didn't just talk about Christ changing their lives. You know, as, as nice as that is, they actually lived it out. I mean, here's, here's the proof in the pudding, so to speak. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. See how it goes from heart and mind to action? Um, they were one in heart and in mind. And because of that unity, that, that intimate connection, when they looked at others, they didn't just see somebody as, as a project or an inconvenience, but a brother or sister to be loved. I, I know, for example, even thinking of our Amaga Day discussions again, too, and uh, I remember Sheila and, and Dale Watson, when they see uh, a, a, somebody in African-American life taken there, like, that could be my son. And this, this, so that close identification, the intimacy of, that's my brother and that's my sister. And if there's a need and I can, can meet the need, I'm quick to do it. That's what it looks like to demonstrate grace. This, this amazing 
reality that because of being Christ, we are one. And that compels us to do something about it. They're generous with their material possessions. This is extravagant giving. It's sharing freely. And it could be. It's not if we're not generous with our stuff. We may be, we may just be stingy people, but oftentimes it could be because we're fearful or we have a lack of courage in our giving. We're afraid to take risks that bank on God's provision. Pun intended. If we have that kind of fear, it can prevent us from putting ourselves in a position to see God at work. I, I don't know about you. I've been walking with the Lord for a while now, and it, it's pretty much a maxim in my life that when I put myself in a position through, through giving or even um, in, in a ministry opportunity that feels like I'm out of control with it, but I'm trusting God, it gives him a chance to show up in a unique way. Only he can provide, only he can do something, because especially when we have a lot of material possessions, we can always fall back on those and say, really, I mean, wink, wink, God's provided, but I've done all the work. When you put yourself into a position where God has to show up, he has to provide, that's where you see his grace at work more profoundly and more clearly oftentimes. I mean, some of you can probably stand up and testify to something like that and just does anybody say that they could have a story that says, says that's the case? Go ahead, raise your hands. So I see some hands going up. I see that hand. I see that hand. It doesn't, it, it doesn't mean you're foolish in that, right? Satan came to Jesus and said, throw yourself off the top of this building. See if God will rescue you. That's not what this is about. But this is, Jesus says, why would I, why would I do that? That's, that's foolish. Nonetheless, when God compels and moves us to do something and put ourselves in a position where only he can provide, then all we can say is, look what God has done. Frankly, that's what starting this church was all about. <laughs> and our vision, which is a, a tough vision. If God isn't in this, it's going to fail. Sign me up. I don't want to be the one responsible except for to be the chief repenter and, 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 uh, and say, we have, God's got to show up if this is going to happen. And he has. And it's not, you know, it's different than I would script it. Hallelujah. We need to be bold in action and in deed. It's some of the beauty, I think, of faith promise and Usually we're collecting faith promise pledges, giving above and beyond our normal giving that we're looking for God to provide that goes 100% toward missionaries. We've done this for since the inception of Redeemer, and I don't know what the total number it is, but I'm, I'm, it's over $100,000 we've been able to give just a small church like this to real people that we support in places where we're unable to go. And we'll be doing that again, but we've been focused on this, you know, this particularization thing that's happening next Sunday, and so it will start talking more about this, but it's an opportunity to position yourself to see God provide. That's just one of the benefits. And that's where we see God's provision at work most clearly. We're generous and sacrificial. We're just in a position to see his hand at work. So that's, that's the first kind of picture here. God's grace powerfully at work. You see, it's in the believing church. And, and most of these people are experiencing God's grace in that way. And then we get 
an example of some other people who are not experiencing it now. They're missing, as it were, God's grace. We see that in the rest of the text here for today, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and you, we've already read it. They're missing God's grace. And all that we've discussed is really set in stark contrast. We have the general example of the church and a specific example even there of generosity. There's this guy Barnabas who comes and sells some stuff and lays it down at the feet. And that's the immediate context for Ananias and Sapphira. It's, it's, it's important to note the giving that was done here according to verse 34. It was voluntary. It was from time to time. It's not that they were keeping something for themselves with Ananias and Sapphira that's the key issue. Even here in verse 4, Peter acknowledges the funds were at their disposal. They could have done whatever they wanted to with them. The real issue, of course, is an issue of the heart. You know, giving in, in the New Testament is to be done from the heart, cheerfully. Paul says each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's no mandate or compulsion that's being given here. You must surrender absolutely everything. This is an issue that's happening internally. And from what happens inside, that overflows to the actions that you move forward with in your life. So just like so many other issues, and even back in the Old Testament, this is all about what God's doing on the inside. It seems here then that the sin, the real issue, is a sin of half-heartedness and deceit and hypocrisy. Together they endeavored to keep back part of the money. They had a plan. Let's not reveal everything. And that would have been fine, except that here Peter says in verse 3 that they lied to the Holy Spirit. There's some intentional deceit happening here. Those two combining, the, the, when I say half-hearted, this, half, this is a hard issue, right? So they're not being wholly committed. In fact, the word lied that's used there is the same as the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The same word used back in Joshua chapter 7 with Achan's sin when Achan hid and lied to God some of, the, some of the things that were supposed to be wholeheartedly devoted to God, he kept for himself. Same word that's used here. So there's this half-heartedness, there's this deceit, and there's this hypocrisy as well. And by hypocrisy, it's that the actions they were reporting was not truly what was happening. Their outside and their inside did not align. They were pretending to give everything when they actually weren't. They appeared to be one thing and they were something altogether different. And that was a very destructive force in the New Testament church moving forward. And it's a destructive force in churches today as well. Uh, Tim Keller suggests in his study on this, Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of spiritual pride and we're using Christianity as a way to get a reputation for being moral and spiritual pillars. They'd obviously missed the gospel's message of free grace to unworthy sinners. Thus, their Christianity was really 
a way for them to earn their reputation and sense of worth through spiritual achievements. That's frankly what I heard some of Terry talking about too, right? It's very subtle, maybe not quite so obvious, and we can hide it a little bit better. I don't know how many of us are going to walk out dead this morning, but nonetheless, this tendency, this desire to earn the approval of man at the expense of God's. God just wants us to be honest with what's happening. They were trying to be something different. They would have perhaps risen up into places of leadership in the church. They would have made the church a proud, smug, legalistic place. Ananias and Sapphira are really living examples, so to speak, of the parable of the sower. Uh, Matthew 13, 19 through 22. You remember that parable Jesus tells about how people receive his word? When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Different things taking away the, the longevity of the word of God, the deceitfulness of wealth can choke the word. The worries of this life, trouble, persecution, or the evil one. It seems like there's a couple things happening at work here in this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Certainly the deceitfulness of wealth. But Satan's mentioned too as a real adversary. A real enemy. A lion seeking to devour. I mean what greater way to destroy the witness of the church. Than to take people who are in it. And make them hypocrites. Deceitful. Half-hearted. That means he'll target people in just this way. He'll tempt us to lie so that we can appear better than we are, so we can protect ourselves and our reputation. But we've just seen that if we're experiencing God's grace powerfully, we don't need to be in protective mode. We don't have to protect our reputation. God will. We don't have to provide for ourselves and pretend he's providing. Imagine how different the scenario would be if they had said, Here's a portion of our sales. Honestly, we wish we could give more, but our hearts are wrestling with greed and fear. <laughs> I'm struggling with this right now. I mean, like, we've made this sale. Here's the total portion. We're, we're giving some. That's the best we can do right now. Would you pray that our hearts would open up and we'd be more generous in the future? It's that, that kind of integrity, that kind of honesty is something that even the world appreciates. My goodness. And people are honest about their shortcomings and their failures. Even people without the same standards say, isn't that refreshing and nice? It doesn't mean there aren't consequences, of course. But there's a different approach to it, a, a tempered response with that refreshing honesty. They're not doing that, though. They intentionally lied. They conspired to hide and protect. Why? 
except for if it's not to look great in the eyes of those who are gathered in the church. Instead, they don't take their thoughts captive. They're enticed and driven by something entirely self-serving. What is Satan's native tongue? Lies. When he's, you know, that's what it is. He's the father of lies. You never sound more like Satan than when you lie and then when you twist the truth and deceive others, including yourself. And this grieves the Holy Spirit. The text says the Holy Spirit is God in verse 4. He is a person. He can be grieved. And treating the things of God lightly for personal gain apparently can be deadly serious. <laughs> certainly is in this case. It's a graphic depiction of the spiritual reality that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. And the prerequisite for that, even as Eric was reading Psalm 51 earlier too, is a heart that's willing to be honest with that. We can never measure up which one of us is equal to the task. God's grace, it seems, is at work not only when we overflow with generosity, but we're honest about the greed and the ice in our own hearts when we can't be generous. That's the grace of God also. So I think this morning, some of you probably need to hear the note of grace and others the note of judgment. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting, uh, throughout the Bible we see both of these notes at work. There are times when we need to know that God is an all-consuming fire because we're treating lightly the things of God. And other times when we need to know that he's a shepherd who will never lead us, leave us. He'll always lead us, he'll just never leave us. And I know some of you are designed in such a way that when you come to a text like this, it, it, it confirms your greatest fears. God is against me. If you have faith in Christ, he's not. All of his wrath, that, that wrath I had the opportunity to preach on so many years ago, was poured out on Christ. And now there is no condemnation for you. There's none. You cannot do enough to earn God's favor. It's unmerited. That's what grace is all about. If you had to earn it, it would cease to be grace. And you need to hear again and again the note of grace. Some of us have a tendency to live in self-condemnation and stack up a list of reasons why we're no longer included in the kingdom. I tell you, look at Christ again and again and again. As soon as you start thinking you can earn your way into the kingdom, you've put grace aside. And you've actually minimized the great sacrifice of our perfect lamb. Some of you, however, need to wake up from your slumber and you need to hear the note of judgment. God is not to be trifled with. He is completely holy. Even somebody who, like Isaiah, who had a, a pretty good pedigree in terms of his godliness, entered in the presence of God and said, woe is me. I can't measure up. I'm undone. You remember that once a year when the high priests would go into the Holy of Holies, they would attach, by tradition, a rope to his leg and a jingling bell 
on his waist in case he fell dead in God's presence. The holy of holies, the, the most holy guy around, the high priest, might be dead in God's presence. That's how holy God is, a consuming fire. More on that in just a second. But a couple of questions to ask as some diagnostics for this morning. What about you? Are you a person of grace? Would people describe you as a person of grace? That is, are you somebody that, that do people fear being around you? <laughs> you might not be a person of grace. Do you give those in your life freedom to fail? Do you give yourself space to fail? Are you approachable? Do you speak God's word boldly? Do you hold loosely to the stuff that you have? One of the ways you can grow, just very practically, if you say, I want to become a better person, uh, powerfully showing and demonstrating God's grace, is, is giving, is to start giving and give more. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 7 says, I want you to excel in the grace of giving. You want a really tangible way to cultivate being a person of grace and not miss God's grace, then give. Look for opportunities to do it. Another question to ask is, do you treat God's grace lightly? There is freedom, remarkable freedom, to fail in God's kingdom, but there's also a weightiness here. This is some of the tension in the walk of faith. Paul acknowledges later that the temptation to sin so that grace can abound is a foreign mentality in God's kingdom. Just, you don't just walk into sin because you know God's going to forgive you. That says something about the state of your heart. It's, it's at least suspect to those who've tasted grace. And on the contrary, grace obligates us to live a, right, a life of righteousness. That's a, that's a tension I know that you both, you feel again, and you might be a kind of person who tends toward one way or the other. So know your own heart. Hear the note of grace if you need to, but also the note of conviction. Don't treat God's grace lightly. It costs him his son. And then just maybe a broader question, a basic one is, have you tasted God's grace? Or put otherwise, are you missing God's grace somehow? You can be in the church and never really know God's grace. You can miss it, like Ananias and Sapphira. And if that's the case, I would simply suggest be aware of that and ask for it. You know, if your heart's not moved towards the things of God and you feel apathetic and cold and condescending and, and prideful, confess it. Be honest about it. If you're not concerned at all about missing God's grace, then you should have some concerns. If you are concerned, you're probably in a pretty good place. Even if you say, I'm concerned that I'm not moved by these things, that's God's spirit at work, graciously moving you toward the things of God. I don't know if you remember from 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman, uh, Gehazi, and, and Elisha. Na Naaman was outside uh, Israel, but had taken, in his family had a, a girl who came from Israel, uh, somebody they had, had brought into their household to serve them, and he comes down with leprosy, and he's distraught about this physical reality, so the girl says, look, I know somebody back in 
my hometown back in Israel who could, who could deal with that. So he goes to Elisha and he goes through this process, but at the, at the end of the process, he's healed. And he, he experiences God's hand of favor upon him, though he really didn't deserve it. It's a picture of grace because he's even outside the covenant family. And when he's, he's, he's healed, he says, hey, how can I compensate you to Elisha? Elisha says, no, I don't want anything. This is something that God has done. Go ahead, be on your way. And, you know, you've tasted God's grace. Go. And so he leaves, but Gehazi, who was a servant in Elisha's household, doesn't like how Naaman's received this kind of favor, and, and he gets a little bit greedy. He wants this person to pay for what's been done, but not Elisha, so he's not going to pay Elisha, but he uses Elisha's name. He tracks down Naaman as he's leaving. He says, hey, by the way, this other thing happened. Elisha needs some money from you after all. And Naaman says, well, yeah, take whatever you want. Here, he's very generous. I'm, I'm happy to give. And the picture is of a person who's inside the church, who's greedy and looking for everything he can get from a person who's outside, who's experienced and tasted God's grace and is being generous. And perhaps you know the rest of the story. When he goes back, Elisha's like, hey, what's going on here? And he, he finds out what's really happening. And, and Gehazi, at the end of the story, ends up with the leprosy that Naaman had. Naaman's healed and goes being generously praising of the God who's shown him grace. And the person who's sitting in the church pew day after day is looking for ways to benefit from this. And the picture, of course, is the leprosy of the heart. It's the, the ice-cold heart. You know, I, I so often think of, especially when we lean into faith promise, that, that church of lepers in India that was known the church of the overflowing hearts. The church that gave generously, but of course their giving was so minimal. It made such a, a small difference, it seemed, because they basically had nothing, but they gave all that they had or much of what they had. And that's what they were known of, this church of lepers, the church of the overflowing hearts. They had a, a position and a posture that said, we've tasted God's grace. We're not taking it lightly. We want to be people of grace and we'll give generously. I guess it's no surprise then that Paul, when he's talking about generosity, is reflecting on the generosity shown in the person of Christ. We said, see that you excel in this grace of giving. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. Listen to what chapter 8, verse 9 says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Ananias and Sapphira missed that. They were looking for ways to leverage material possessions for their own good instead of the kingdom of God. And that's not what our Savior did. In fact, he had all the wealth and emptied himself and became poor. So you could know today, sitting in this pew or listening online, that you can be rich in God. And that wealth is not something you can accumulate. It's only something that he has done and that we receive empty-handed. So if we've been given so much by him, we as people of grace can give as well. It's just a reflective giving that we give anything. We believe God owns it all. We're just stewarding what he's given to us. And let's not let 
Satan or trouble or persecution or hardships take away the opportunity to live in this grace. In fact, those can become the very points where we say God is really at work among us. God's grace is powerfully at work, not just in the church, but in me individually. Father, I pray that you would, we wouldn't miss your grace. For those today who need to hear the note of conviction, treat lightly the things of God, would you, by your spirit, who is God himself, convict and bring us to a point where we are willing and honest to admit before you, we've been busy building our own kingdoms. Forgive us, Lord. For those who need to hear the note of grace, who feel like they're under constant condemnation, may they hear that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is what grace looks like. And so our response is a reflective one as well. And we can never possibly accumulate enough spiritual capital to earn our way into heaven. It's about what Christ himself has done. He is the one who's truly rich. He took on our poverty on the cross. And because of that, we are free to respond responsively be people of grace. Well, I know there's a tension there, Father, but you know our hearts. So do your work in them, wherever we may be. We want to be a people of grace, a church of grace, where your grace is powerfully at work among us. And so we, we ask you to do that, Father, whatever it may take. And I thank you for the ways that I have personally received and seen the way that your grace has been at work powerfully among us. Would you humbly, I ask, continue to do that same work in us so that we can grow in grace in the weeks, months, and years ahead. So that when we encounter God, not every encounter with God ends well, as this one shows. We want ours to end well, Father, individually and collectively. Because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.